The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And you probably guessed if you weren't here last week, uh, this week for the small groups, and then just in terms of my reflections that I'm going to offer now, is what we can learn, what we have learned, what we can learn about being aware of pleasantness. And this is a nice place for us to um, deconstruct and get clear about what the Buddha means by worldly pleasantness versus unworldly pleasantness. And this is true for all the feelings, you know, whether it's unpleasant or neutral or pleasant. And it's it's actually not as uh, it's not as complicated as you might think, and it's really this ethical dimension. So whenever we're meeting, knowing a pleasant experience, and the tendency of that pleasantness is to trigger greed, then we call that a worldly pleasant experience. But not all pleasant experience experiences trigger greed, right? Like I was trying to point to in the guided meditation tonight. Some pleasantness, um, some pleasant experience really lead to um, letting go. And this is one of the great things about um, concentration practice is just to see how it's we're accessing, like to really drop, for the mind to drop into a quieter space, we're just accessing a natural process, meaning there's a feedback mechanism there. And it really, uh, it really revolves around connecting with that inner pleasure and the thing is, if you grasp, like if you're starting to feel, you're meditating, let's say, and you're starting to feel calm, and it triggers greed, oh, I really like this calm feeling, I want more of it, are you going to get calmer? No, because wanting to get calm is an agitating thought. And if we're identified with the thought, I really want a good sit, I really want to get calm, I want to sit better than anybody else in the room. Well, that's a disturbing thought to have. And things will get tight in the body and in the mind. And then that unpleasantness of the tightness is very likely to trigger more reactivity. Oh, I lost that good feeling. Can't believe it. And then on and on. So, when we notice that the body, the mind, the heart is settling and it feels good, then the instruction is to notice that good feeling. You don't need to grasp it. So there's this is the alternative. Like whenever there's a pleasant feeling, and this is hopefully what you've been learning at home this last week when the homework was really to get interested in any pleasantness, through any of the six gates, sense gates, you know, a pleasant sight, pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, pleasant tastes, pleasant touches, pleasant thoughts and memories. Just like 
resolve. And if you didn't do it this last week, do it this next week. It's better to, to kind of begin by taking pleasantness as a teacher than unpleasantness. Because one of this is a real shadow in Buddhist practice, is like we're all intensely interested in unpleasantness. And, you know, it makes sense because life is hard for human beings a lot of the time, not always, of course, but a lot of the time. And so we tend to get skewed towards dukkha, 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 right? The, the sort of ordinary unpleasantness of what arises in the mind sense gate, the thinking mind, and what arises in the five, through the five physical senses, right? The unpleasantness of all that. So for, if you didn't, didn't feel like you bowed down to the teacher of pleasantness this last week, then do it this next week, okay? You're my teacher, and I, I resolve to be a sincere student. And, and really, you have to, I mean, I know it sounds a little contrived, but when you wake up in the morning, leave a note next to your nightstand, so you remember to repeat, oh yeah, today I want to notice Pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant touches, pleasant smells, pleasant tastes, pleasant thoughts and memories. I want to notice. I want. I, it's like a mindfulness bell will go off whenever something is even close, you know, relatively pleasant. You want a little mindfulness bell to go off. Oh, this is a chance for me to notice, right? through my mistakes and through my successes, how I might relate to this pleasant sight as I'm walking and seeing the crocuses coming, pushing their way through the dead leaves or whatever it might be for you. A cute puppy or a, you know, a bird you haven't seen recently. And you know, oh, seeing, pleasant, right? There's contact through this eye, the eye sense gate, Seeing is being known, and it's pleasant, okay. And you'll see that, that fork in the road where the mind, through this avenue of greed, wants to own that pleasantness, wants to have more of it. And so then it's not so much the pleasantness that's being known once the mind goes down that road, it's the reactivity, which of course will be greed with pleasantness, some version of greed. But there's something else we can do. Instead of going that pathway, we can do the pathway of being mindful of the pleasantness itself. The push, the delight, but not the wanting to own, wanting to have, wanting to keep. And that's a skill we have to learn. How to be aware, intimate, with pleasantness without going into attachment. And one of the the reason that I, I bring up, like in the guided sit, the whole pathway of settling, you know, where we had the initial pleasantness is like I had a busy day and now I'm sitting relatively still in a quiet room with my eyes shut and my body, you know, relatively still. And compared to the rest of the day, my experience is really simple. And you know what? That feels good. From the relative chaos, 
of everything that happened before to the relative simplicity of just sitting here, feeling my breath, feeling the body sitting, hearing the ambient sounds in the room. You know what? The mind finds the simplicity pleasant. And see, that begins this whole thread that I was talking about, the thread of seclusion. And the nice thing about that thread of seclusion, the mind getting quieter and quieter, is it's self-reinforcing and it and any kind of greed that gets triggered will be immediately seen as going in the other direction towards constriction and things getting tight, right? And so we can learn, like people who are really good at deeper states of meditation, meditative absorption, they get really good by teasing out effort that's counterproductive, like trying too hard. Because it's a natural dropping in. And trying to drop in doesn't work. <laughs> but dropping in will happen when the mind is interested without greed but just appropriately interested in how good it feels. Oh, this is pleasant. And you, met, you might have noticed in the guided sit tonight, um, it's not easy to keep in mind the pleasure because, you know, probably through evolution, our mind is much more interested in threats, i.e. unpleasantness, than it is in pleasure. It's sort of funny. Even if I have a lot of nice stuff, you know, we tend to be, is someone going to take it away from me? <laughs> it's hard for us just to abide in pleasure. So please continue your exploration. And I strongly encourage, you know, if, to stay for the group, the small group tonight, and to really unpack that in your group of three or four people. You know, each person shares for a couple minutes and then whatever time left, it should be five to ten minutes after everyone gets a chance to share, just to share and ask questions about experiences of pleasure. And there's a real art to talking to each other in these little Buddhist circles that we have, because we're really talking about experience directly. You know, oh yeah, I was home, I went to the fridge, I took out my favorite chocolate pudding, or you know, whatever it is. And uh, I noticed that just thinking about it, there was some pleasure there. Or, you know, I had this sit in the morning, there was this nice feeling of calm. I noticed that it was pleasant. When I noticed it was pleasant, it got more pleasant. So it's like the way, as Buddhist practitioners, the way we talk to each other when we're having a Dharma conversation is in that blow by blow by blow manner. Because the basic premise that the Buddha taught from is that we're living in a lawful space, a lawful universe, a conditional universe. So when I share to you about my own experience, <clears throat> I say, this arose, the mind knew it, you know, noticed it, and maybe it noticed it with greed or it noticed it with some wisdom, and then this happened, and the mind either noticed it or didn't notice it initially. So we're sort of trying, it's, it's a 
technique or it's a skill we have to develop. You know, it's a way of being really honest with each other. Instead of telling somebody my the interpretation of what happened to me, we try to paint a picture that sort of is in line with this lawful, conditional nature of our experience. That's how things unfold. And each moment of my experience conditions the next moment. And that's really what we're trying to kind of um, deepen that insight. Because that's exactly why we study feeling tone. Because this moment of mine and this moment of yours you're having right now, the feeling tone is conditioning how we're experiencing this moment. Just like how we're experiencing this moment is going to condition the next moment. So the whole reason the Buddha tells us, hey, <laughs> you want to be free? You got to stabilize your present moment awareness and use it to get interested in the feeling tone. It's the not seeing feeling tone that is the cause for so much suffering. I'll just share a short uh, discourse uh, from the Buddha before going to some of the questions that people sent in. This is the Vedana Sutta. You know, Sutta is an interesting word. It's just similar to when you when you get uh, stitches, sutras, right? Because uh, the uh, Sanskrit and Pali are Indo-European Indo languages, so there's a lot of uh, roots that are the same as the languages that many of us speak. So Vedana, the discourse on feeling tone from the Buddha. It's very short and sweet. At Sabati, practitioners, feeling, this is the place, feeling born of eye contact is inconstant, inconstant changeable, alterable. Feeling born of ear contact, eye contact, nose contact, tongue contact, right? So all these six sense gates, whatever feeling we feel, the Buddha says, it's inconstant, it's changing, it's alterable, it's not dependable. And he says, somebody who has a strong conviction that this is true is called a faith follower. And they've entered the uh, orderliness of rightness, meaning they got their head screwed on right. Even at the level of like, oh yeah, this makes sense. So it doesn't mean we have deep insight, but it just makes sense. Hopefully we're all here. You know what? Pleasantness isn't that constant. I mean, think about today. How many really unpleasant moments did you have today? Is it like that now? No, because they weren't constant. They lasted for a while, a moment of really unpleasant humiliation or a moment of stubbing your toe and throbbing in your toe or a moment of this kind of unpleasantness and that kind of unpleasantness. It was inconstant. Same with the pleasure. So, the Buddha says that even when you kind of order your life around this conviction, this so-called spiritual belief, this spiritual resolve, hey Mark, feeling tone isn't that dependable. 
he, the Buddha says, you have a lot of momentum in your spiritual life. And the way they said it in the early Buddhist tradition is, before you die, you're going to have deep insight. You're on your way to deep insight. Just having that conviction. And then he says, but for those, after pondering, have actual insight. <laughs> Here it's translated, a modicum of discernment has accepted that these phenomena are this way, is called someone on the path, Dharma follower. No longer a run-of-the-mill human being. And then one who knows and sees is called somebody with the first stage of awakening. Right? So it's like that, it's just interesting that the Buddha often equates the awakening process with waking up around feeling tone and not being confused. That feeling tone is more substantial than it actually is. And just notice the next time you get a wave of pleasure, you go home, or I guess we're all home already, but you know, after the program in a little bit, you know, and you're with your honey or your four-legged honey or whatever it is, you know, talking to your friend on the phone, and there's just a nice wave of so nice to be with this other being. Let's just say that that happens to you tonight. It'd be really nice just to be curious about how substantial, like this pleasure is real and it's insubstantial. Like really get that at the same time. Or you might notice like you've worked really hard to get a nice apartment or to decorate a room in your home or to make a nice cup of soup for yourself or whatever it might be and to really meet the pleasure of it and to realize this will last for a while and then it will evaporate, it will fade away. Because I've had a lot of nice bowls of soup. Or, you know, as nice as my home, I feel pretty um, settled and appreciative of my home. I've lived here now almost 30 years. Uh, this is the old Common Ground meditation space, actually. This room was our old Dharma Hall. And when Common Ground moved out in 2009, uh, when and I, because we owned the building to begin with, we just stayed here and has made it. Now we have a very big living room. <laughs> but... Uh, now it feels really comfortable. But I, it's like I realize, because I've been practicing a long time, like the beauty or the comfort I feel, the appreciation I feel, I realize I can't grab it. I can't actually own it. I can't convert that momentary pleasantness that I experience quite often every day. There are many moments where I'm appreciating my home. It's not a rare occurrence. I appreciate it a lot. And I appreciate my cat, and I appreciate, like, I have good food in my refrigerator. But I, I notice I can't kind of own it or grab it and make it mine in a way that, like, makes me safe or gives me permanent satisfaction. And that's interesting. And that's what we want to get interested. That's part of our contemplation of pleasure is to see that. And this sutta that I just sort of reviewed for you, it's really the Buddha talking about that whole pathway. That's all we're doing, basically, is stabilizing our awareness 
And one of the ways we stabilize our awareness is we do what the Buddha did when he remembered that settled experience he had when he was a little boy. And we take advantage, we get good at paying attention to relatively stable pleasures like the pleasure of seclusion and calm and inner joy and inner ease and loving kindness because that really stabilizes the awareness. And then with this more stable, sensitive awareness, we watch all the uh, feeling tones come and go. Whatever, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And we observe the ephemeral, insubstantial nature of feeling tone. And that, surprisingly maybe, is what really supports the awakening process. So I want to just cover a couple of the questions. I really appreciate people sending in these questions and feel free to do that uh, in the few weeks, I guess, that we have less left in this course. So this came uh, over a week ago from John and I'm going to read both John and Dave um, had uh, interesting questions. Feeling tone, their associations and their disentangling. I wish I could translate Pali. Short of that, it seems translating the phrase feeling tone into language my body recognizes might be worthwhile. For me, feeling tones are sensitivities held in the torso that respond and continue in reaction to the six sense gates existing before emotions. The hook, stress, is the continue in reaction part. I become frightened by the prospect of their persistence. For example, if I don't squash them, distract myself, or in other ways run from feeling tone, it will grow and become so unbearable that it may be overwhelming. Doubt asks whether mindfulness, noticing, will be enough, as Analeo says, to nip it in the bud. Yeah, really great reflection. And... uh yeah, I think basically what you said sounds right to me. Um, but not all feelings will be felt in the body. But feelings really is, as I mentioned, I think last way uh, last week, this bridge between the two. And uh, Dave's comment is somewhat similar. Um, he writes, "For some time, I felt a, uh, I have a felt sense in the body after that second arrow has penetrated." Right? So the mind has reacted to feeling tone in a way that's made the body and mind tight, perhaps. The felt sense in the mind has been pretty much noticing the unsatisfactory nature as tightness or tingling in the shoulders, chest, back, thighs, around the temples, in the arms. I need to read further the attachment and, refl- and reflect on it. I need to read further the attachment and reflect on it. It seems that noticing the effects in the body is much easier than noticing the feeling tone in the mind. Yes, absolutely true. Or is the mental noting of the feeling tone of that second dart in the body what we are investigating as the mental feeling? Well, it's really, they're related. You know, that's the thing is the body often does reflect the mind as the mind often reflects the body. But in the case of being a human being, subtle is more significant than gross. 
And this is a little bit different than kind of in the West where materialism sort of reigns. And we tend to think of the mind being birthed by the material. You know, we have a mind because we have this gross physical body. And the body has a brain, and because of the brain we have a mind. But in practice, and generally in Eastern systems of thought, it's really the material is a manifestation of the mind. Much like in our dreams tonight, when you go to bed and you have a dream, you'll have a material existence in your dream, won't you? You'll be driving a car, or you'll be eating food, or doing whatever you're going to do in your dream. It will feel like a material existence, but that material existence is arising out of the mind, correct? So why is this different? How are we so sure that this physical reality is causing the mind as opposed to the mind is responsible for this so-called physical reality? At least from this little sharing here, we should keep an open mind. We don't really know, do we? Because we know like when we dream at night, that seems, when we're in the dream, seems like reality, physical reality. Let me just read a little bit before we break into groups. This is just a, a, a passage from Venerable Analio about this mind-body connection in response to the email that John and and um, Dave wrote, Does this mean that the experience of feeling is entirely mental and bears no relationship to the body? This does not seem to be the case. In fact, common experience indicates that the actual experience of pleasant or painful feeling involves the body as well as the mind. Joy may manifest as the rising, uh, as the raising of hair or goosebumps, goose pimples, <laughs> just as displeasure may show its effect through the bodily tension and facial expressions. Again, obtaining or losing desirable objects can affect the heartbeat and blood circulation, or else intense feelings can cause faster breathing, etc. Now, isn't this true? Like, especially people we know. If you're around a good friend, someone you know quite well, and they're experiencing something really deeply unpleasant, you can read it in their body, even not being their body, but just observing their body. You can, because often the body is reflecting what's the unpleasantness of what's going on in the mind. And then a little later, <clears throat> this is the, I linked to this last week, uh, in last week's email to this section from Venable Analio's book. Feelings can thus be seen as an intermediary between the body and the mind, having a conditioning effect in both directions. One aspect of this intermediary role is that whatever happens in the body is mentally felt through the medium of feelings, while the other aspect is that the affective tone of mental processes influences the body through the medium of feelings. And this is that great churning of our experience. We have a lot of feeling, tone, and we're learning, like, as we say sometimes in activist work, especially around racism and some of these more sticky sexism, sticky areas, 
where we really want to do some deep healing, you know, one of the adages you hear activists say, can you stand the heat? Learning to stand the heat. And this really aligns with Dharma practice. You know, as we do our Dharma practice, really getting interested in feeling tone, we have to be willing to stand the heat or like it's intense to be interested in feeling tone. Mostly there's a moment of feeling tone and then immediately we're in our reactivity about that particular feeling tone we're feeling. But just to stay in the alive dynamic of feeling this and then feeling that and then feeling the next moment, the pleasantness of it, the neutrality of it, the unpleasant of it, that's, that's a different way to be a human being. And it's a quite alive, rich way. But we have to sort of build our capacity to be aware of feeling tone. And that's really why we have this course. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.